Chapter Fifteen, Part Three of The Sea. Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril and Heroism, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Sea. Its Stirring Story of Adventure, Peril and Heroism, Volume One, by Frederick Wimper chapter fifteen the history of ships and shipping interests part three when the king had determined in fourteen fifteen to land an army in france he hired ships from holland zealand and friesland his own naval means not being sufficient for the transport among his other preparations requisite for so high an enterprise boats covered with leather for the passage of rivers are mentioned his fleet consisted of one thousand sail and it left southampton on sunday the eleventh of august of the above-mentioned year when the ships had passed the isle of wight swans were seen swimming in the midst of the fleet which was hailed as a happy auspice henry anchored on the following tuesday at the mouth of the Seine, about three miles from harfleur a council of the captains was summoned and an order issued that no one under pain of death should land before the king but that all should be in readiness to go ashore the next morning this was done and the bulk of the army stated to have compromised twenty-four thousand archers and six thousand men of arms was landed in small vessels boats and skiffs taking up a position on the hill nearest to harfleur the moment henry landed he fell on his knees and implored the divine aid and protection to lead him on to victory then conferring knighthood on many of his followers at the entrance of the port a chain had been stretched between two large well-armed towers while it was farther protected by stakes and trunks of trees to prevent the vessels from approaching during the siege which lasted thirty-six days the fleet blockaded the port and at its conclusion henry flushed with a victory which is said to have cost the english only sixteen hundred and the enemy ten thousand lives determined to march his army through france to calais it was on this march that he won the glorious battle of agincourt on the sixteenth of november he embarked for dover reaching that port the same day here a magnificent ovation awaited him the burgesses rushed into the sea and bore him ashore on their shoulders the whole population was intoxicated with delight one chronicler states that the passage across had been extremely boisterous and that the french noblemen suffered so much from seasickness that they considered the trip worse than the very battles themselves in which they had been taken prisoners when henry arrived near london a great concourse of people met him at blackheath and he as one remembering from whom all victories are sent would not allow his helmet to be carried before him whereupon the people might have seen the blows and dents that he had received neither would he suffer any ditties to be made and sung by minstrels of his glorious victory for that 
he would have the praise and thanks altogether given to God. Next year, the French attempted to retake Harfleur. Henry sent a fleet of four hundred sail to the rescue, under his brother John, Duke of Bedford, the upshot being that almost the whole French fleet, to the number of five hundred ships, hulks, carracks, and small vessels, were taken, were sunk. The English vessels remained becalmed in the roadstead for three weeks afterwards. Southey, who has collated all the best authorities in his admirable naval work, says the bodies which had been thrown overboard in the action, or sunk in the enemy's ships, rose and floated above them in great numbers, and the English may have deemed it a relief from the contemplation of that ghastly sight to be kept upon the alert by some galleys which, taking advantage of the calm, ventured as near them as they dare by day and night, and endeavored to burn the ships with wildfire. He adds that the first mention of wildfire he had found is by Harding, one of the earliest of our poets, in the following passage referring to this event. With oars many about us did they wind, with wildfire oft assailed us day and night, to bren our ships in it that they could or might. Next year we read of Henry's preparing to again attack France. The enemy had increased their naval force by hiring a number of Genoese and other Italian vessels. The king sent a preliminary force against them under his kinsman, the Earl of Huntingdon, who, near the mouth of the Sina, succeeded in sinking three and capturing three of the great Genoese carracks, taking the Admiral Jacques, the bastard of Bourbon, and as much money as would have been half a year's pay for the whole fleet. These prizes were brought to Southampton, from whence the king shortly set forth with a fleet of fifteen hundred ships, the sails of his own vessel being of purple silk richly embroidered with gold. The remainder of Henry's brief reign, for he died the same year, is but the history of a series of successes over his enemies. It must never be forgotten that the navies of our early history were not permanently organized, but drawn from all sources. A noble, a city or port, voluntarily or otherwise, contributed according to the exigencies of the occasion. As we shall see, it is to Henry Eighth that we owe the establishment of a royal navy as a permanent institution. In 1546, King Henry's vessels are classified according to their quality. Thus, ships, galleasses, pinaces, row barges. A list bearing date in 1612 exhibits the classes as follows. Ships royal, measuring downwards from 1,200 to 800 tons. Middling ships, from 800 to 600 tons. Small ships, 350 tons and pinnaces from 200 to 80 tons according to the old definition a ship was defined to be a large hollow building made to pass over the seas with sails without reference to size or quality before the days of the great harry few if any english ships had more than one mast or one sail the ship had three masts 
and the henry grady du which supplanted her four the galliers were probably a long low and sharp-built vessel propelled by oars as well as by sails the latter probably not fixed to the mast or any standing yard but hoisted from the deck when required to be used as in the lugger or felucca of modern days the pinnace was a smaller description of galleys while the row barge is sufficiently explained by its title the history of the period following the reign of henry v has much to do with shipping interests of all kinds the constant wars and turbulent times gave great opportunity for piracy in the channel and on the high seas thus we read of hannikin lu an outlaw from ghent who had so prospered in piratical enterprises that he got together a squadron of eight or ten vessels well armed and stored he not only infested the coast of flanders and holland and the english channel but scoured the coasts of spain as far as gibraltar making impartial war on any or all nations and styling himself the friend of god and the enemy of all mankind this pirate escaped the vengeance of man but at length was punished by the elements the greater part of his people perished in a storm and hannikin lu disappeared from the scene shortly afterwards we find the hollanders and zealanders uniting their forces against the easterling pirates then infesting the seas and taking twenty of their ships this action says southey was more important in its consequences than in itself it made the two provinces sensible for the first time of their maritime strength and gave a new impulse to that spirit of maritime adventure which they had recently begun to manifest previously a voyage to spain had been regarded as so perilous that whoever undertook it settled his worldly and his spiritual affairs as if preparing for death before he set forth while now they opened up a brisk trade with that country and portugal till now they had been compelled to bear the insults and injuries of the easterlings without combined attempt at defence now they retaliated captured one of their admirals on the coast of norway and hoisted a basil at the masthead in token that they had swept the seas clean from their pirate enemies and now in turn some of them became pirates themselves more particularly hendrik von borselin lord of veer who assembled all the outlaws he could gather and committed such depredations that he was enabled to add greatly to his possessions in walcheren by the purchase of confiscated estates he received others as grants from his own duke who feared him and thought it prudent at any cost to retain at least in nominal obedience one who might render himself so obnoxious an enemy this did not prevent the admiral for he held that rank under the duke from infesting the coast of flanders carrying off cattle from cadsant and selling them publicly in zealand his excuse was that the terrible character of his men compelled him to act as he did and the duke admitted the exculpation being fain to overlook outrages which he could neither prevent nor punish 
a statute of the reign of henry the sixth sets forth the robberies committed upon the poor merchants of this realm not merely on the sea but even in the rivers and ports of britain and how not merely they lost their goods but their persons also were taken and imprisoned nor was this all for the king's poor subjects dwelling nigh the sea-coasts were taken out of their own houses with their chattels and children and carried by the enemies where it pleased them in consequence the commons begged that an armament might be provided and maintained on the sea which was conceded and for a time piracy on english subjects was partially quashed meantime we had pirates of our own warwick the kingmaker was unscrupulous at all points and cared nothing for the lawfulness of the captures which he could make on the high seas for example when he left england for the purpose of securing calais then belonging to england and the fleet for the house of york he having fourteen well-appointed vessels fell in with a fleet of spaniards and genoese there was a very sore and long-continued battle fought betwixt them lasting almost two days the english lost a hundred men one account speaks of the spanish and genoese loss at a thousand men killed and another of six-and-twenty vessels sunk or put to flight it is certain that three of the largest vessels were taken into calais laden with wine oil iron wax cloth of gold and other riches in all amounting in value to no less than ten thousand pounds the earl was a favorite with the sailors probably for the license he gave them when the duke of somerset was appointed by the king's party to the command of calais from which he was effectually shut out by warwick they carried off some of his ships and deserted with them to the latter not long after when reinforcements were lying at sandwich waiting to cross the channel to somerset's aid march and warwick borrowed eighteen thousand pounds from merchants and dispatched john dynam on a piratical expedition he landed at sandwich surprised the town took lord rivers and his son in their beds robbed houses took the principal ships of the king's navy and carried them off well furnished as they were with ordnance and artillery from a time warwick carried all before him but not a few of his actions were most unmitigated specimens of piracy on nations little concerned with the house of york and lancaster their quarrels or wars but as this is not intended to be even a sketch of the history of england let us pass to the commencement of the reign of henry the seventh when the great minishment and decay of the navy and the idleness of the mariners were represented to his first parliament and led to certain enactments in regard to the use of foreign bottoms the wines of southern france were forbidden to be imported hither in any but english irish or welsh ships managed by english irish or welsh sailors the act was repeated in the fourth year of henry's reign and made to include other articles while it was then forbidden to freight any alien ship from or to england with any manner of merchandise if sufficient freight were to be had in english vessels on pain of forfeiture one half to the king the other to the caesars henry says lord bacon 
being a king that loved wealth and treasure he could not endure to have trade sick nor any obstruction to continue in the gate vein which disperseth that blood how well he loved riches is provided by the fact that when a speedy and not altogether creditable peace was established between england and france and the indemnity had been paid by the latter the money went into the king's private coffers those who had impoverished themselves in his service or had contributed to the general outfit by the forced benevolence were left out in the cold from calais henry wrote letters to the lord mayor and aldermen which was a courtesy says lord bacon that he sometimes used half bragging what great sums he had obtained for the peace as knowing well that it was ever good news in london that the king's coffers were full better news it would have been if their benevolence had been but alone scotch historians tell us that sir andrew wood of largo scotland had with his two vessels the flower and yellow carvel captured five chosen vessels of the royal navy which had infested the firth of forth and had taken many prizes from the scotch previously during this reign henry the seventh was greatly mortified by this defeat and offered to put any means at the disposal of the officer who would undertake this service and great rewards if wood were brought to him alive or dead all hesitated such was the renown of wood and his strength in men and artillery and maritime and military skill at length sir stephen bull a man of distinguished prowess offered himself and three ships were placed under his command with which he sailed for the fourth and anchored behind the isle of may waiting wood's return from a foreign voyage some fishermen were captured and detained in order that they should point out sir andrew's ships when they arrived it was early in the morning when the action began the scots by their skilful manoeuvring obtained the weather gauge and the battle continued in sight of innumerable spectators who thronged the coast till darkness suspended it it was renewed at daybreak the ships grappled and both parties were so intent upon the struggle that the tide carried them into the mouth of the tay into shoal water that the english seeing no means of extricating themselves surrendered sir andrew brought his prizes to dundee the wounded were carefully attended there and james with royal magnanimity is said to have sent both prisoners and ships to henry praising the courage which they had displayed and saying that the contest was for honor not for booty few naval incidents occurred under the reign of henry the seventh but it belongs nevertheless to the most important age of maritime discovery henry had really assented to the propositions of columbus after portugal had refused them had not the latter's brother bartholomew been captured by pirates on his way to england and detained as a slave at the oar the spaniards would not have had the honor of discovering the new world this and the grand discoveries of cabot directly encouraged by henry who reached newfoundland and florida the various expeditions down the african coast instituted by don juan the discovery of the cape 
and new route to india by diaz and vasco de gama the discovery of the pacific by balboa and cape horn and the straits of magellan will be detailed in another section of this work they belong to this and immediately succeeding reigns and mark the grandest epoch in the history of geographical discovery the use of firearms says southey without which the conquests of the spaniards in the new world must have been impossible changed the character of naval war sooner than it did the system of naval tactics though they were employed earlier by land than by sea it is doubtful when cannon was first employed at sea one authority says that it was by the venetians against the genoese before thirteen thirty their use necessitated very material alterations in the structures of warships the first portholes are believed to have been contrived by a shipbuilder at brest named zecharge and their introduction took place in fourteen ninety nine they were circular holes cut through the sides of the vessel and so small as scarcely to admit of the guns being traversed in the smallest degree or fired otherwise than straightforward hitherto there have been no distinctions between the vessels used in commerce and in the king's service the former being constantly employed for the latter but now we find the addition of another tier and a general enlargement of the war vessels still when any emergency required merchant vessels not merely english but genoese venetian and from the hansa towns were constantly hired for warfare so during peace the king's ships were sometimes employed in trade or freighted to merchants henry was very desirous of increasing and maintaining commercial relations with other countries in the commission to one of his ambassadors he says the earth being the common mother of all mankind what can be more pleasant or more humane than to communicate a portion of all her productions to all her children by commerce many special commercial treaties were made by him and one concluded with the archduke philip after a dispute with him which had put a stop to the trade with the low countries was called the great commercial treaty into cursus magnus it was framed with the greatest care to render the intercourse between the two countries permanent and profitable to both the first incident in the naval history of the next reign that of henry the eighth grew out of an event which had occurred long before a portuguese squadron had in the year fourteen seventy six seized a scottish ship laden with a rich cargo and commanded by john barton letters of mark were granted him which he had not apparently used to any great advantage for they were renewed to his three sons thirty years afterwards the bartons were not content with the repaying themselves for their loss but found the portuguese captures so profitable that they became confirmed pirates and when they felt their own strength they seem with little scruple to have considered ships of any nation as their fair prize complaints were lodged before henry but were almost ignored till the earl of surrey then treasurer and marshal of england 
declared at the council board that while he had an estate that could furnish out a ship or a son that was capable of commanding one the narrow seas should not be so infested two ships commanded by his two sons sir thomas and sir edward howard were made ready with the king's knowledge and consent the two brothers put to sea but were separated by stress of weather the same happened to the two pirate ships the lion under sir andrew barton's own command and the jenny perwin or bark of scotland the strength of one of them is thus described in an old ballad by a merchant one of sir andrew's victims who is supposed to relate his tale to sir thomas howard he is brass within and steel without with beams on his topcastle strong and thirty pieces of ordnance he carries on each side along and he hath a pinnacle dearly dight st andrew's cross it is his guide his pinnace beareth nine score men and fifteen cannons on each side were he twenty ships and he but one i swear by kirk and bower and hall he would overcome them every one if once his beams they do downfall but it was not so to be sir thomas howard as he lay in the downs descried the former making for scotland and immediately gave chase and there was a sore battle the englishmen were fierce and the scots defended themselves manfully and ever andrew blew his whistle to encourage his men yet for all that lord howard and his men by clean force entered the main deck there the english entered on all sides and the scots fought sore on the hatches but in conclusion andrew was taken being so sore wounded that he died there and then the remnant of the scots were taken with their ship meantime sir edward howard had encountered the other piratical ship and though the scots defended themselves like hardy and well-stomached men succeeded in boarding it the prizes were taken to blackwell and the prisoners one hundred and fifty in number being all left alive so bloody had the action been were tried at whitehall before the bishop of winchester and a council the bishop reminded them that though there was peace between england and scotland they contrary to that as thieves and pirates had robbed the king's subjects within his streams wherefore they had deserved to die by the law and to be hanged at the low water mark then said the scots we acknowledge our offence and ask mercy and not the law and a priest who was also a prisoner said my lord we appeal from the king's justice to his mercy then the bishop asked if he were authorized by them to say thus and they all cried yea yea well then said the bishop you shall find the king's mercy above his justice for where you were dead by the law yet by mercy he will revive you you shall depart out of this realm within twenty days on pain of death if ye be found after the twentieth day and pray for the king james subsequently required restitution from henry who answered with brotherly salutation that it became not a prince to charge his confederate with breach of peace for doing justice upon a pirate and thief but there is no doubt that it was regarded as a national affair in scotland and helped to precipitate the war which speedily ensued some of the edicts of the period seem strange enough to modern ears 
the scotch parliament had passed an act forbidding any ship freighted with staple goods to put to sea during the three winter months under penalty of five pounds in fourteen ninety three a generation after the act was passed another provided that all burgs and towns should provide ships and buses the least to be of twenty tons fitted according to the means of said places provided with mariners nets and all necessary gear for taking great fish and small the officers in every burg were to make all the stark idle men within their bounds go on board these vessels and serve them there for their wages or in case of refusal banish them from the burg this was done with the idea of training a maritime force but seems to have produced little effect james the fourth built a ship however which was according to scottish writers larger and more powerfully armed than any then built in england or france she was called the great michael and was of so great stature that she wasted all the oak forests of fife falkland only excepted southey reminds us that the scots like the irish of the time were constantly in feud with each other and consequently destroyed their forests to prevent the danger of ambuscades and also to cut off the means of escape timber for this ship was brought from norway and though all the shipwrights in scotland and many others from foreign countries were busily employed upon her she took a year and a day to complete the vessel is described as twelve score feet in length and thirty-six in breadth of beam within the walls which were ten feet each thick so that no cannon-ball could go through them she had three hundred mariners on board six score gunners and a thousand men of war including officers captains skippers and quartermasters sir andrew wood and robert barton were two of the chief officers this great ship cumbered scotland to get her to sea from the time that she was afloat and her masts and sails complete with anchors offering thereto she was counted to the king to be thirty thousand pounds expense by her artillery which was very costly the great michael never did enough to have a single exploit recorded nor was she unfortunate enough to meet a tragic ending in fifteen eleven war was declared against france and henry caused many new ships to be made repairing and rigging the old after an action on the coast of brittany where both claimed the advantage and where two of the largest vessels the cordelier with nine hundred frenchmen and the regent with seven hundred englishmen were burned nearly all on board perishing henry advised a great ship to be made such as was never before seen in england and which was named the henry grace de dieu or popularly the great harry there are many ancient representations of this vessel which is said to have cost eleven thousand pounds and to have taken four hundred men four whole days to work from erith where she was built to barking creek their masts says a well-known authority were five in number but he goes on clearly to show that the fifth was simply the bowsprit they were in one piece as had been the usual mode in all previous times although soon to be altered by the introduction of several joints or top masts which could be lowered in time of need the rigging was simple to the last degree 
but there was a considerable amount of ornamentation on the hull and small flags were disposed almost at random on different parts of the deck and gunwale and one at the head of each mast the standard of england was hoisted on the principal mast enormous pendants or streamers were added though ornaments which must have been often inconvenient the great harry was of one thousand tons and in so far as this writer can discover the only skirmish she was concerned in the channel for it could not be dignified by the name of an engagement carried seven hundred men she was burned at woolwich at the opening of mary's reign through the carelessness of the sailors end of chapter fifteen part three end of section thirty four